racism is a root cause of much of the inequity in healthcare. And we know that for so many reasons, but now there's abundant research evidence, there's abundant anecdotal evidence from people's lived experiences, and we know enough to move forward. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on Amplify Nursing, we talk with Mary Carmen Farmer. Mary Carmen is a nurse midwife and social justice advocate who knew from a very young age that she wanted to be a nurse. That calling was solidified while working beside nurses caring for her daughter who was born with a genetic anomaly. Currently, she works in a community practice in Philadelphia which serves immigrant communities, patients who are underinsured, and women of color. We talk with her about her path to and tangible passion for midwifery, the joy it brings her, and how the confluence of the pandemic, racial unrest, and health inequity affects the care for her most vulnerable patients. All right, so Mari Carmen, thank you so much for coming to speak with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. So why don't you start with telling us what brought you into nursing? A few things. I I expressed an interest in nursing when I was really little, maybe six or seven, and my parents at the time was like the early seventies felt like that wasn't really a good career choice just because I think what nursing represented then, you know, it was like, they felt like I should be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. So I was like pretty quickly talked out of nursing and I switched kind of interest into um, being a vet. And I spent most of my like, you know, high school career kind of reaching for that and was pre-vet in college. And then a couple things happened. One is I got pregnant in college and I gave birth to my son. You know, it was a pretty unexpected pregnancy and had a really incredible experience with um, midwives and realized that midwifery is really where I belonged. Up until then, I I was a sociology major along with my pre-vet stuff. And I was really very early on started doing social justice work. And I really saw midwifery as kind of the intersection of healthcare and social justice. And so I kind of caught that bug, you know, maybe when I was 22. And at the time, I didn't know what track of midwifery I wanted to do, but the people who were caring for me were nurse midwives. So if I wanted to follow in their footsteps, I would you know, go to nursing school. But then something else happened that that really kind of changed or like increased my passion for nursing, which is that a few years later, I gave birth um, to a daughter who unbeknownst to us would be born with um, a genetic anomaly. And she only lived, you know, a little bit past her third birthday. And she, she spent most of her life in the hospital. And when she was home, there were nurses in our house and on the phone and nurses were like literally in every corner of our lives. And I spent a good part of my life in those three years in the hospital. 
And my company and my friends and my support were all nurses. And so it really kind of changed the way that I view nursing and really deepened my respect for the work that they do. And also, I just got to see like how versatile career it was because nurses were managing her meds and nurses were caring for her at home and nurses were doing all her case management, like around insurance and all of that stuff. I just, you know, I really got to see kind of the breadth of what nursing could do. So after that, I really knew that I wanted to be a nurse midwife, that I wanted to be a nurse, you know? And so eventually after a few years, she died in 2004 and actually we just celebrated her 20th birthday a couple of days ago. So it's worth mentioning. It was on Tuesday. What's um, her, what was her name? Kayla. Kayla Isabel. Yeah. And she eventually, she spent most of her life undiagnosed, um, but about 10 weeks before she died, we got an answer, which is pretty amazing. Um, she, the human genome map was completed in her lifetime. And one of the articles that came out of that research ended up helping us discover what she had, which is really pretty amazing. You know, there's no cure for Rett syndrome and there certainly was no cure for how sick she was. She was really sick by that point, but it still was a, a pretty incredible gift. So a few, like she died in 2004 and I started um, nursing school in 2008 and I went to Eastern University locally and just did a like second degree BSN and only applied to one hospital. Um, at that point, I had been a doula for many years, like I have to do the math on that, like 10 years when I finally graduated from nursing school and most of my uh, births had been at Pennsylvania hospital and it's a hospital with a really large midwifery practice that those were the midwives that cared for me for all my pregnancies and I really got to know the nurses really well and I loved the way they cared for people there and so that's the only place I applied and I was really lucky to get hired it was still the recession was sort of still happening and it was really hard to get jobs around then, but I was really lucky to go there. So that's where I went. And uh, knowing that I wanted to go to midwifery school and thinking that I would only do bedside nursing for maybe two years, but I totally ended up falling in love with it. And so I did it for seven years <laughs> instead. I felt like there was so much to learn and so many things to do in my nursing school, like during my nursing school, the summer between the two years that I was in school, I was really lucky to land an externship at CHOP in the special delivery unit, um, which is a place um, that cares for mothers who have prenatally diagnosed fetal anomalies and their babies either require immediate medical care upon birth or they come there to have a compassionate end of life experience. And that really, you know, resonated with me, given what I had been through. And so I knew that I wanted to work there as well. So two years into my nursing career, I took a per diem job there. And so I ended up working at both institutions until I graduated from midwifery school, which is a pretty amazing thing to be able to do both of those. Yeah. And I, I really applaud your willingness to go back into that considering yeah. all, everything that you went through, that's really difficult. I know for me, I had um, a couple of traumatic births. And when I went back for the CRNA program, 
I shied away from OB originally because it was, it was a little too traumatic for me mm-hmm. to go in there. It made like, even when I was just there on a regular day, I, I just felt anxious the whole time I was there, but I eventually got over that. And I really have a huge place in my heart for OB. And I, I do still spend a lot of time there. I think because of the experience of my traumatic births um, really bleeds into how I treat the traumatic births that I see, you know, and how I treat the the women that I'm caring for because I've, I've been in their shoes and I know what it feels like. Yeah, exactly. I, I felt like it was really important for me to figure that part out, like to kind of, you know, work through my grief enough that I would be able to apply what I learned and, and do something with like this thing that I knew very intimately. And so, yeah, it was hard at first for sure, but it felt really important to me. And so I'm glad I was able to do it. It was really quite a privilege. I didn't realize also that you were a doula. How did that experience prepare you for, you know, what you eventually came into in midwifery? In so many ways, like I, I loved being a doula. I felt really lucky to have, I sort of stumbled upon it. I didn't even, you know, back then, this was 2001. I had never heard of it. Most people had never heard of a doula, at least not in a formal sense. You know, I like sort of, it was like kind of an accident that I stumbled upon this thing and I was able to get trained when my daughter, that same daughter, Kayla, was just a newborn. And that was pretty incredible opportunity. And so being a doula has really shaped my lens, I would say, as a birth worker, as someone who's at the bedside with people in labor, it has taught me how to, you know, have like a therapeutic presence at the bedside. It's taught me patience with the process and just a very deep trust of what the human body is capable of during labor. It's given me such a huge respect for everyone else on the team, you know, really helped me understand what people's roles were and how we could work together to give someone the best birthing experience possible. And it's really given me, you know, I think that one of the things that's really hard about hospital birth is that there's an inherent tension between the autonomy of the patient and the the roles of the healthcare team. I think that people feel really threatened when a patient tries to be autonomous in their decision-making and being a doula first took all of that out. Like, I, I just don't feel that way at all. And I feel really strongly that people, you know, that our job is to inform people, you know, about everything that we understand about birth and about all their options and what the risks and benefits and alternatives are in a particular case or at a particular decision point. And then it's really up to them to make that decision. And it doesn't, you know, take anything away from us or add anything to us if they decide one way or the other. And that it's really our job to try to make the most of that situation. And being a doula really taught me how to do that. And it's one of the things now, one of the things I do in my job is I help train residents at the bedside, you know, OBs. And it's one of my favorite things to work with them on is like shared decision-making and really helping to take some of that um, tension out of the process. Cause I don't, I don't think it's necessary at all. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think it's really difficult. I think for some people to give up that control and mm-hmm. And also, I also think, you know, just to have a little bit of, 
you know, from a clinician standpoint, mm-hmm. I think some people get really comfortable with what they know and what they know how to do. Mm-hmm. And when somebody, you know, a patient wants them to do it a different way, mm-hmm. it, it can be a little stressful. Um, yeah, totally. It's scary. I yeah. mean, we have a huge responsibility, you know, and um, it is really scary, but I, it, I don't know. I, being a doula just helped me like trust that you can find a, you know, kind of a common place and that you just have to work at it a little bit. Um, but I think that often um, in our training, we're not always given the tools to learn how to do that. And we have to learn on the job. And that's, that's scary when you don't know how to do that. And it's intimidating. Um, and I, and I just think about our residents, like many of them are very young in age and they're dealing with people who are much older than them who are giving birth. And, and I think that's hard too, you know, they don't like, sometimes they're not taken seriously or they're not listened to. And it's just, it's just hard. But I think once you're comfortable with it, then you can navigate almost, almost any situation. And I think being a doula really taught me that skill, which I love. I'm really happy. I was a doula first. It, it definitely seems like it played a huge part in shaping how you mm-hmm. look at things and giving you confidence in in your decisions and, and being able to work with patients. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that's so hard to learn and it's so hard to teach, especially when you, it's not something that's modeled often. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that I really try to do is, is model it with the residents. Cause I think it helps them to see the outcome. Then they're like, Oh, I want to learn how to do that. You know, and there's no magic in it. It just mm-hmm. takes practice. You just have to keep working at it and you have to have kind of a, fundamental trust in other people. And that's, you know, something that's not always cultivated um, in our training, but, but I think you can get there, you know? So I loved being a doula. I still miss it sometimes. I mean, it's quite a luxury to just be able to be at someone's bedside and labor sit with them and, you know, get them help, get them to the end and help them bear witness to their own power and their own strength. It's just an amazing, amazing amazing work, you know? So I'm really glad I got to do it for as long as I did. So what are you doing now? Uh, So now I'm a midwife. Um, I graduated from Penn in 2016 and I left nursing like bedside nurse in, in 2017 and went to Hahnemann University Hospital to work with a big practice there. And I loved working there. It was amazing. I one of the reasons I went there, the primary reason I went there is because Hahnemann was the only hospital in Philly who the midwives were doing primarily clinic work. So they were working in neighborhoods in Philly, in the Philly public health system at their clinics, providing prenatal care. And the majority of patients are immigrant folks, uh, folks who don't have insurance or are Medicaid insured, and the majority are women of color. And that's really who I wanted to work with. I'm a first-generation American myself. Parents are immigrants. My native language is Spanish. And so I really wanted to be able to use my Spanish and just use my understanding of the world from that perspective. And so I went there. Um, The other reason I really wanted to go there is because the midwives had this really wonderful collaborative care model with the physicians where they were one practice and both the midwives and the physicians were faculty for um, the residents. And so they were clinical educators and I love to teach. So that was really, you know, an amazing opportunity to be able to do that. So I was there 
um, from 2017 till 2019, when I'm sure, as you know, Hahnemann suddenly closed the summer of 2019. And, you know, when the closure was announced, L&D was either the first unit or one of the first units to close because it couldn't safely stay open while other units were closing, like the ICU and the blood bank and the pharmacy and the NICU, because you can't run an L&D unit like that. So I don't know, within two weeks of the announcement, we were closed and the city and the state worked together with Jefferson to get us over there within 24 hours of our unit closing so that there was no interruption of care for our patients, which was pretty incredible, but also incredibly traumatic. And I don't even know what the word is, chaotic. And so we landed on Jefferson's L&D floor in mid-July and we spent the next, we, when I say we, I mean my midwifery practice from Hahnemann, spent the next couple months really thinking about what we wanted the future to look like and for us. And we really wanted to stay together as a practice. And there were a few hospitals in Philly that were interested in having a midwifery practice, Jefferson being one of them. And so we interviewed with three hospital systems and in the end ended up choosing, ended up choosing Jefferson to stay with. And we've been there ever since. So we officially started, I believe it was September 30th of 2019 was our start date there. So we still are a clinic practice. We still work at our health centers around the city. We also work as providers for Jefferson. So at their main prenatal and GYN office downtown, and we cover the labor floor 24 hours a day. And we do that as clinical educators as well. So just like Hahnemann was, when people come in labor at Jefferson, they automatically get a midwife and a resident to care for them, regardless of where they got care or if they got care or if they were at Jefferson before or really anything. And the only time there's an exception to that is if their medical history kind of risks them out of midwifery care. So in that case, we either co-manage with the physicians, uh, depending on what the condition is, or the physicians, meaning the attending physicians, take over the care if they're you know, if they have comorbidities that, that don't align with midwifery care. And it's great. It's busy, really busy. But we see all kinds of people from all around the city. And like I said, I love teaching. So, so that's been wonderful to be able to continue teaching as well. Can you clarify for the people who are listening, what are mm-hmm. the role differences talking when you're talking about a doula, an L&D nurse, and a midwife? How, how are the responsibilities different? Sure. So a doula is a labor support professional. They do not have a medical license. They are a lay person who is very well educated about pregnancy and labor. And their focus is on being a resource to the, to the client. So helping inform them about pregnancy, helping them make decisions about you know, either in their pregnancy or in their birth, helping them access resources that they may need, all kinds of resources, helping to support them emotionally during the labor, both the the client and if they have a partner or support person, helping to support that person as well. And, And really understanding what the client's goals are for birth and helping them achieve it. They don't do anything uh, medical. They don't do cervical exams. They don't diagnose in any way. They don't even speak for the client. They may, 
they may make a suggestion or ask a question or, you know, do things like, for example, ask the provider team, can we have a little time to talk, but they don't speak on behalf of the client or make decisions for them. They sort of belong to the client in that way. And there are doulas of all kinds. There's also postpartum doulas who are the ones who support parents after they give birth for, you know, some amount of time afterwards, helping with feeding and baby care and rest and adjustment to postpartum life and mental health resources, all of that. So that's a doula. Then a labor and delivery nurse is a bedside nurse, a nurse who is trained labor and delivery, even though most people probably don't think of it this way, is kind of a critical care specialty. It can be very intense. And when emergencies happen, they happen quickly and you know you have to move quickly. It's one of it is the only specialty where when you get a patient, you get two patients. So it's hard in that way that you're always thinking about both the health of the baby and the health of the birthing person. And they have a medical license, a nursing license, and they help with everything from, you know, antepartum care, which is prenatal care, sort of prenatal care that requires a hospitalization in pregnancy that not necessarily is going to end in birth during that, that admission to triage, which is like, like an ER for, I mean, it's an ER anywhere, but specifically labor and delivery, labor and delivery nurses run their own ER to labor and then to postpartum, like the immediate recovery. And that can be recovery from a vaginal birth or also from a C-section. So labor and delivery nurses also circulate in the OR, often scrub in the OR as well. So it's a really multifaceted specialty. And they work as part of a team with providers, midwives and docs and residents who are, who are doctors who are in training to specialize in OB. And then finally, midwives are in hospitals, at least on the East Coast, they are nurses who, are, who go back to school to get a master's in midwifery. Not all midwives in the U.S. have that training. There's several ways to become a midwife in, in the U.S. and different types of midwives have different ability to practice in, in different states, but at least here, it's what we call for short CNMs and CMs, which are certified midwives who have advanced degrees in, in midwifery care. And midwives really focus on low risk, healthy people who are pregnant. That's really um, the focus of their care in pregnancy. They're also trained in primary care, in normal care of the newborn for the first 28 days, and in all facets of gynecological care. So contraception, ovarian and uterine, you know, difficulties, pelvic pain, there's a whole host of other things that we do in the GYN world. We do have prescriptive authority, so we can prescribe medications, including narcotics. There's a whole host of things that we can do. We can first assist in the OR with an extra certification, which is really nice. We can do ultrasound. There's a lot of things that midwives can do once you have that degree. Thank you. I appreciate you clarifying that for everyone. So this year, this past year has been very difficult on multiple levels, starting with Mm -hmm. the pandemic. How did that influence and affect the care that you were giving your patients, especially in the very beginning? Mm -hmm. So a, a number of things. The first is that we had to very quickly adjust kind of like the physical reality of our care. 
in the sort of the commercially insured office, the private office, as we call it, um, at Jefferson, we moved most of our visits to telehealth visits. So for the parts of the pregnancy was where it wasn't crucial to actually do a physical exam on the pregnant person, then we would do the appointments by telehealth. The clinic was much more challenging because it wasn't set up for telehealth. And most of our clients in the clinic don't have the ability to use telehealth. They may not have Wi-Fi, they may not have the right you know, device to do telehealth. So for those visits, we spaced out the visits more. And we certainly changed the kind of physical layout of the clinic, like the chairs got physically spaced, there were less people allowed, there were no partners who were allowed to come in with the patients, which is still the case now. We did some phone phone visits in places where it wasn't important at times when it wasn't necessarily important to see the person on video. And, you know, we were in PPE, obviously, just like everybody else knows, we didn't really know what was happening. So it was really scary and really unsettling. You know, we had some really serious cases of COVID early on at Jefferson of, of pregnant people. And so it very quickly caught our attention as something that that could be potentially fatal and, and was really terrifying. As the pandemic moved on, it became really clear that the implicate the social justice implications of this pandemic were like alive and well in Philadelphia. You know, we, our clients in the clinics were the most deeply affected in terms of like how many people were getting sick, how many people didn't have access to PPE, how many of our clients were essential workers with very little, you know, nobody really looking out for them, very little protection from their work places and very little ability not to work or to work less or to take a pay cut because they were just, you know, barely surviving as it was. You know, there were certain regions of Philly that were really hard hit that corresponded with the places where we give care. And so that was also really scary and really sad. And we we tried our best to compensate. I mean, there were lots of things that we did, but one thing that comes to mind right away is my daughter she sews, you know, just like as a hobby. And she made, you know, a large supply of masks just for us to hand out because people literally didn't have masks. Like they just didn't have them. And so they were walking around without them. And some of our clients wore that same mask, just washed it, you know, on a regular basis for, for months, for a year, probably that same one. Um, and it seems hard to believe for some of us, but yeah, it, it, it really highlighted the gap in economic wellness that we have in our city and in our country in a way that was really sad and really frustrating. And hopefully highlighting it in such a way that we know we have to do differently and do better. Yeah, let's hope. I think the thing that was so powerful about last year is, you know, that we had the pandemic and then we had also this very impactful period of racial unrest, which we're still in, that just sort of the the connections between those two things were so obvious to us on the ground. It was a really difficult time to be a provider in those communities because the fear was all around us, you know, fear of violence, fear of police brutality, fear of COVID, and just the feeling that, you know, nobody's looking out for them. And so it, it placed really quite a burden 
on us to, to be one of those touchstones for our clients and really listen to them and give them a place of refuge. You know, of course, we are also going through the pandemic. So it, it took quite a bit out of us. And, you know, we came from Hahnemann, that was a, a safety net hospital where the culture was really to provide that place of refuge to a place that is still working on that culture. And so that that was also hard. But I think brought a lot of awareness to a lot of people about what the issues are in black and brown communities and immigrant communities and kind of what they're what they face in their daily lives in their lived experiences. So how did your group support each other considering that you were both being affected by all of these things and also caring for a really vulnerable population who needed to be supported as well? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. We all worked really hard. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't have a really good answer for you. I mean, we have a really amazing practice director. She's an incredible leader. And, you know, she's been our leader for a really long time, even before I joined the practice. So that was really helpful, the continuity of having the same people around you. I do think that, you know, just like in any setting where you're in a really tough situation, just like being an LND nurse that, you know, when you're kind of in the trenches, as we say, that you just learn to work together better because you have to. I think one of the things it did is, you know, being new to Jefferson, it very quickly forced all of us, us and the Jefferson folks to make connections with each other and to take care of each other while we were on the floor because there was work to be done and there were people at risk. And I think we've learned a lot from each other in the last year. It was a, a really kind of bizarre way to enter. You know, we entered, we came on at the beginning of October and, you know, the pandemic started the end of February, basically, beginning of March. So there wasn't a whole lot of time to kind of orient or get to know folks before we were just like thrown right into this next trauma. And so I don't know. I, I think we did the very best we could. We met on Zoom as much as possible and we stayed in touch with each other and we do work together at the clinics, which is a really nice thing. So we're not alone when we're there. There's at least two of us at a clinic at any given time, plus our nurse and social worker. So that was also really helpful that we got face-to-face time with each other, which is nice. Since you've been on the front line of this all of these things from the from the beginning, what are things that you think we could do differently in Philadelphia from a public health standpoint to take care of our more vulnerable populations? A lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, right now, one of the projects that I'm working on is I sit on the Philadelphia Maternal Mortality Task Force, which is a huge honor. It's run by the Philadelphia Department of Public Health. And what they do is they look at all the deaths in Philadelphia of women in their childbearing year and try to really assess what the risks are that are leading to their death. And Philly is really leading the way. Um, They were the first city-based maternal mortality team, and they're the oldest one. And they're kind of a model around the country. Other cities come to us to see how we're doing it, which is really amazing and kind of a little known fact. And I'm a newbie here. I mean, this has been going on for for quite some time, but the three causes that they have identified as the primary causes of maternal death in our city are racism, cardiovascular disease, and substance use disorder. 
and related mental health issues that are under often underlying substance use disorder. So I think those are the things we have to focus on. One of the things that the city has done, which is really innovative and, and new, and as far as I know, I don't know that there are many other cities doing this, is they've formed another group called OVA, or Organizing Voices for Action, which is a group of stakeholders, people from all over the workforce that work with families, so social workers, people who work in insurance, physicians, midwives, nurses, drug and alcohol counselors, all, all kinds of, including folks with lived experience, you know, parents, mothers. So it's this, this group of problem solvers, essentially. What's happening is the, the Philadelphia maternal mortality team is going to turn their data over and make some recommendations for change. And then this group, the Organizing Voices for Action, is going to use those recommendations to, to affect new action in our city. And because it's coming from the Philadelphia Department of Health, they're working closely with the five hospitals that still do birth, which are Jefferson, Einstein, Hupp, Hensi, and Temple in the city to make those changes. And so there's lots of areas where those changes are going to happen. And one of them is around a really big push to change the work we do around racism to really step up our anti-racism efforts. Um, so I, I think that's one of the main things because racism is a root cause of much of the inequity in healthcare. And we know that for so many reasons, but now there's abundant research evidence, there's abundant anecdotal evidence from people's lived experiences. And we have enough, we know enough to move forward. So, so that's one of the really exciting things one of the other things I've been doing this year or in the last few years, actually, is developing an initiative called Midwife y Maestra. Maestra means teacher in Spanish. It's a collaborative of facilitators and consultants, me being kind of the primary one, and then me pulling in other folks to collaborate with me to help healthcare providers move forward around racism, around anti-racism, to really learn how to affect change in their institutions, in their own lives, in their interpersonal interactions, and also to work with healthcare providers around the trauma that they experience in their work, because we know that those two things are directly related. We know that people, you know, OB is a very hard specialty. It's very hard to work with women and birthing people at such a vulnerable time and it does a lot of damage to us. It's a very like emotional field. And when we are damaged, we pass on that damage. So it's one of the things that I'm really passionate about is really helping to step up our game around taking care of each other, around building resilience and around institutionalizing wellness practices for us so that we can be better for our patients and our families. Yeah, I really agree with you there looking at healthcare providers as a second victim to really traumatic experiences is mm -hmm. something that we're extremely far behind in. Penn has started to look at care for the care provider, but I don't know that it's taken off as much as it can and mm -hmm. has, has had an, enough of an impact to make a big difference, but I really applaud your efforts there. It's such an incredibly important thing. We we often treat our healthcare providers like it's like cogs in a wheel. You know, you see a yeah. terrible thing happen and it's like, okay, great. Let us know when you're ready because we got someone else to come in and, and go, you know? Yeah. So it's really Yeah, hard. it's really dehumanizing for us and for, 
for our patients, you know, and right. we have to like somehow change that culture. Right. Mm-hmm. I- I've always been confused when entities, you know, they push these initiatives to, you know, have compassion for the patient, you know, all these different things. And it's like, but nobody has any compassion for the providers. So if you have compassion for the provider, it stands to reason that they will push that compassion onto their patients and you won't even have to tell them about it. So why don't we start there? Yeah. It's very um, counterintuitive the way that Mm -hmm. we treat, you know, our, our healthcare providers. It really is. One of the like great honors of my career especially in this last year in the pandemic has been leading the Philadelphia midwifery community. I am the president of the Philly Metro midwives, which is kind of the professional group of midwives, both certified nurse midwives and certified professional midwives, really any, any midwives who want to be part of our community leading that community through the pandemic has really taught me so much about who we can be for each other and how to kind of deepen our well of resilience and how to get through something really, really hard, you know, and how to acknowledge truths that are difficult to face. We've done a lot of talking about racism and bias and the harm that we do, you know, whether we intend to or not is not irrelevant but the impact is much more important and learning to focus on that and not become defensive, but really become open to learning and growing. So that's been a really hard thing that I've had to do this year, but really also a really incredible honor. And I've, I've learned a great deal from, from doing that. And hopefully it has made a difference in, term of, in terms of the harm that we do to ourselves and, you know, or is, or is like visited upon us just by being part of the med- medical industrial complex and also the harm that we do to our patients. I've really, really appreciated the time you've taken to talk to us today. This has been fantastic. You're doing so much incredible work and I hope this gets to a lot of people so that people can know and participate and help and start to change the culture of healthcare in our area. But before we go, I just want to ask you now, how do your parents feel about you being a nurse? (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Um, No, I I think that they have seen um, not only like what, what great impact nurses have had on our lives, because obviously my daughter's life impacted all of us in our family, but also the deep joy that it brings me and, you know, what I've been able to do as, as a nurse. So I, I think they're, they're really proud and, you know, can see that it really was my calling from the beginning. Cause that's how I feel. I feel really lucky to have, you know, come full circle and not shied away from that and just answer that vocation. Cause it's definitely where I belong. Hello, Marion. Hello, Angela. How's it going? It's amazing. How are you? I am good because I just got to listen to you interview Marie Carmen, who I am just in awe of right now. Like it was such an interesting conversation. The number of things that I learned <laughs> and the number of things she is doing and involved with um, is really incredible. I'm so glad you got the chance to talk with her. Yes. I've been waiting to do this interview with Mari for so long. I'm really excited that we got to do it. She has been at the forefront of taking care of vulnerable populations in Philadelphia 
She's a part of the task force for Philadelphia Public Health System, looking at how can we make these changes. She is such a hugely compassionate person that comes from her experience. And I think this is something that we miss in healthcare in general, is we kind of look at it as it's, it's not about me or my personal experience. And we kind of separate that and we, we truncate ourselves in how we care for people. And I think that it, we're completely missing the point. I think bringing our whole selves into caring for patients and bringing our personal experience, acknowledging our personal experience is going to affect our lens is what makes us better clinicians overall. And I think that Mari Carmen is a perfect example of that, of someone really being their full authentic self and being in a space and helping other people. Totally. Everything is better, richer, just more inclusive when you have a variety of people with different backgrounds and experiences. Only when you're acknowledging your differences and the differences of everyone else, of how we're not the same, but better because we're together. Right. And our communities, our patients are not the same. And so if we want a profession that represents them, we need to embrace the diversity that comes along with that. The other thing I think that was really interesting that she talked about is the trauma that bedside nurses and other providers have gone through over the pandemic and how we need to now not just care for our patients, but care for ourselves and our colleagues. And it's an important point that I don't think is getting enough attention. I mean, every now and then you'll see a news story about it, but where's the substantive programs and um, initiatives that are actually really helping our clinical providers who've gone through so much trauma over this past year. And then especially our colleagues of color and immigrant colleagues who had the additional trauma of all the police brutality, racial injustice, health inequity over this past year as well. These are all things that are not getting enough attention and I think need to. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing, with special thanks to our Department of Information Technology Services for their assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing Podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can, please do us a solid and rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.